Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, C4 family. Really glad that you're here today. And again, a huge welcome to our online audience, wherever you might be uh, today. Well, I think we all know that millions of us every single week turn on the television to watch all sorts of TV. But in the last few years, millions upon millions within the North American context have begun watching shows about generosity, tired of the darkness and the constant questions that are posed by so many other shows. Many of us turn to these shows just for a sense of relief. Some of you watch the BBC's uh, The Undercover Millionaire. Others of us watch, you know, the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition, where week after week, millions of people in their homes yell what? Move that bus. See? This This is what our culture watches. Time and time again, we as a culture, we as a people are moved when people of great influence or wealth on television do amazing and generous things. Uh, We've seen so many of this done where people walk in and they deal with debt, they deal with education issues, they give new homes, and, and all of us, even you who say you don't like watching those shows, you're in the corner doing something else, but you're watching that show too. And here's the reason why. We are desperate as a culture for generosity because we live in a culture and in a world that is not generous. We watch the news 24 hours a day and we're desperate to see something good in this world that's falling apart. And so we flock to these these shows. We also relate on a human level. None of us in this room disconnect from a story. We, We all connect because we ourselves are working on our own stories. There's another reason why we absolutely love watching these shows. It's because we're hoping one day it happens to us. We're hoping someone shows up and says, oh, it's all paid off, no problem. You know, the real reason, though, is this. See, every human being, in the sound of my voice, relates to shows like that because those shows are not just about generosity or debts being paid. It's not just about tears or second chances. It's about one thing, freedom. Every one of us knows the bondage of non-freedom. Every one of us sitting here knows at this moment what it's like when we are out of control and we are enslaved to something else, whether it's debt or educational issues or it's sexual struggles or the marriage is in trouble and the list goes on and on. Every one of us knows what, it, what it's like to be in bondage and out of control and there is no hope. And when we watch shows like that, we go, oh, yes, there could be an answer. Our culture and we even as Christians flock to this, but I'm here to declare to you today Long before move that bus ever was declared, our hope and our gospel says this is exactly what God comes to do for us. The whole essence of Christianity is moving us from slavery to liberation, removing debt that we could never deal with and giving us new hope, not just second chances, but new life. And the debt never comes back. I'm excited to preach out of today's passage, genuinely. As one said years ago in some form, the heart of the Bible is the book of Romans, and the heart of the book of Romans is chapter 3, and the heart of chapter 3 is verse 21 through 31, and that's where we're going to be today. Open your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, to Romans three twenty-one. 
It was Martin Luther who wrote many years ago about the second part of chapter 3 that the chief point and the very central point of Romans is found here and actually the whole Bible finds its meaning here in this passage. For all of us, no matter who we are, whether we've been Christians for decades, months, weeks, years, or we're not followers yet, this small group of verses will challenge us this morning, will encourage us, will bring clarity and also conviction. Here, right now, our faith is crystallized for all to see and simply understand. Another put it this way, rarely does the Bible bring together in in so few verses so many important theological ideas, the righteousness of God justification, a shift in salvation history, faith, sin, redemption, grace, propitiation, forgiveness, the justice of God. Here, more than in any other place in Romans, Paul begins to explain to us why Jesus' coming is good news for a humanity that cannot be free by itself. Now, as we've seen, if you've been walking with us in this series, Back to Basics, Chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3 has told us by Paul's writing in no uncertain terms that we are under the dynamic of sin. We are radically corrupt, and this is expressed in our character, in our conduct, and the cause of it is sin itself. Like I shared last week, one famous Russian poet sure got it right when he said these words, I don't know what the heart of an evil man looks like, but I do know what the heart of a good man looks like, and it is terrible. So what to do is the question. What do we do with our condition? What do we do with what faces us? Is there any hope or answer for a human family that is inherently sinful, brokenly, constantly lashing out against ourselves, others, and God? The answer is a profound, bold, and hopeful yes. Finally, here in Romans, we get to the place where the good news comes forward and now shines the brightest. You see, the darker things are, the more deadly things are, the more disturbed a situation is, the more the power of God and His freedom, peace, and liberation are seen, felt, and accepted. I really appreciate the thoughts of Kent Hughes as we transition to this second part of Romans 3. This dynamic called sin, he writes, presents a dilemma for God and the human family. From a human point of view, how do we as such profoundly corrupt human beings ever be getting in the right relationship or being made righteous in the sight of God? Divine justice demands the condemnation of humanity. Make no mistake about it. Yet the divine love of God wants to reach out to a guilty human race. Well, the answer Paul will say to us this morning again is this. It's Jesus. It's always about Jesus, his calling, his birth, life, death, resurrection, his ascension, his work on our behalf. But before we begin afresh with the hope, let's just review the verse we heard, the last verse we heard last week in Romans 3.20. Therefore, Paul wrote, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. As Martin Luther wrote, and I quoted last week, the principal point of the law in true true Christian theology is not to make people better, but worse. That is to say, to show us our sin so we get humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means, then be driven to seek the comfort that comes only from the blessed Christ. Thank God, Martin Luther said, for his law. Thank God for his relentless, loving confrontation of our problem called sin. So our condition is clear. Yet it's into this broken place that God now wants to show us what he's done to give us a new situation, to actually change our state and our circumstances. And that's what Romans 3.21 begins talking about. But now, he writes, 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. But now, those two words are hope themselves. They are the New Testament, move that bus. A new start has happened. Life has now changed again. We are moved from a time before Jesus, now to a time after his perfect virgin birth and his perfect life and death and resurrection. There has been a decisive shift in salvation history. All that was hidden for generations, what was waiting from heaven's view, has now been enacted and understood. Paul is about to say there's a continuity and a discontinuity when it comes to this, when we look at the role of the law. He says, this that is happening is apart from the law. The work of God through Moses, truly the work of God from Genesis to Malachi, cannot fully contain the gospel. The law just kept pointing us to our need for a radical external righteousness because we kept falling short. By the law, again, we become conscious of our sins. We, through the law, become conscious of our radical corruption. And so this righteousness must be infinitely beyond human righteousness and must be given to us, never earned by us. That is why the good news is always, always about an external, radical, heaven-sent righteousness. But there's another rule for the law, Paul says. The law and the prophets testify to this truth. The whole testament was a foreshadow, was a pointing, was a preparing the world for the coming of Jesus, the Christ, who truly is the Son of God. The cross, one wrote, is no afterthought by God. Not a mistake, not a, oh, plan B. It has always been God's intention from, be, from the beginning to reveal his saving righteousness by sending his son as a sacrifice for us. And, and so, hear this this morning. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, every ritual, every feast, all the worship of the God that we know in this church, in tabernacle and, and temple, all that was given by God that made up the fabric of authentic Jewish worship of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is now fully seen, understood, expressed, fulfilled, and accomplished in and through Jesus himself. Paul, knowing that through sheer honesty, he has overwhelmed us and even broken us down by showing our true condition and separation before God is now moving us this morning to a hopeful place. A place where we finally get to see the new chapter, a new life. The implications of Christmas are now being worked out. Now hope is given. The sun is rising from twilight to midnight to noonday. Faith now gets to rise. Faith now is given. There is an answer to our radical corruption, rebellion, and our condition of slavery. Verse 22, this righteousness, Paul writes, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, he says again, between Jew and non-Jew, Gentile. He says, look, righteousness is given. Righteousness is the process by which God makes us to be in right standing with him. When God makes us righteous, God gives a person a new standing, a new legal standing before him. It's like a judge saying, well, you're guilty. And then someone else will take your punishment, and so now you're clean. You're not guilty. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. It's not my work or your work, but God gives us his very nature and puts it on us and his forgiveness. And this new standing, Paul says, comes only by one act, faith. When faith is enacted, then this is applied to you. Faith means just to trust in, to, to rely on. It's trust and reliance, never in a church, never in a family, Never in a history, never in a religion. It always must be in a person. Paul says our faith happens in and through one person, Jesus Christ. 
The one you must trust in is the same Jesus of Scripture, the same Jesus of history and faith. He was fully human and fully God. He is the Christ, the anointed one. He is the one who we have faith in because he was faithful to the task God gave him. The good news of great joy, the angels declared at Christmas, was for who? All people. And then Paul says here, for all who believe. Now again, catch this this morning. Believe is the same word as trust, or faith, or reliance. But in the New Testament, when it talks about salvation, usually it actually is in something called the present continuous form. Could be translated, ready? Is believing. As I said a few weeks ago, daily living is filled with acts of faith. We turn on the faucet to get water, and we we have faith it's safe. We drive across a bridge, and we hope it will not collapse under us. Despite occasional disaster, we fly on airplanes to get us all around the world. People, we as human beings, could not survive without implicit trust in a great many things. Virtually all of life requires natural faith, but what Paul is teaching us here is this. There is a faith that is not human-centered, but God-given. That's why he would write later in Ephesians, faith is not of yourself, but a gift of God. After he tells us this good news, he stops for a moment, and he throws us back, even for a short moment, to the darkness, and now pens one of the most famous and most memorized verses ever in history. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the summary of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3. All of us have sinned. All of us, Jew or non-Jew, all of us are under the power of sin. And like I said to us last week, we are not just sinners. We don't just struggle with sin. Paul is helping us understand we are under the dynamic of sin, under the dominion of a sin, under the power or control of sin. Another said if if, if sin was the color blue, then every aspect of us would have some shade of blue. We are infected with a radical corruption. We are morally ruined as human beings at our very roots. Despite what the world teaches, you were not born good. This is the offense of the gospel. All of us have sinned. All of us are condemned. All of us under the wrath of God. All of us have a heart that leads us continually towards sin. The very religious and unreligious. The kind, the unkind, the wicked. The child that was just born three seconds ago. Children, teens, young adults, adults. Those who are about to die in the next three seconds. All of us under the dominion of sin. We have fallen. And as the ad said in the early 90s, we can't get up. We cannot get up. No matter what we are taught, the scriptures tell us we have fallen so very far and we have fallen far from one thing, the glory of God. Glory means opinion, reputation, image, radiance, reflection. We all cannot measure up to God's holiness, his, his, his presence, his, his radius. The Jewish texts actually say that when Adam fell, he himself lost the glory of God and we ever since have shared in that fate. But this is not the end of the story. God has not let us fall continually farther and farther away from his presence. He has intervened. He has fallen. We have fallen. But now he comes and says, just as all have sinned. Then he says in verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You know, justified is one of those words we should all know here. If you're a highlighter person, it's time to circle or highlight or underline. It means that we're in good standing. Hear this, please. It means we're made righteous. 
We are acquitted in God's court. We are guilty, but God, by the work of Jesus, declares us not guilty. Understand the power of this little word. Acquitted is not just for a period of time. God comes to us and expunges the record of sin, past, present, and future. We get right standing. We are justified. And then Paul says, unbelievably, against any other religion in the world, and all of this, he says, is done freely by God's mercy and grace. We are declared. We have Jesus' life and work transferred from his bank account to our bank account. It's free. It's done by mercy. One reader reading I did this week said it this way. Hear this, especially you who've been Christians for a while. Notice that God pronounces Christians in right standing at the beginning of the relationship, not at the end of the relationship. This again brings home the idea that God does not save us by what we do over a lifetime, but what he chose to do for us right up front. Many of you are sitting here today and you are followers of Jesus, but you have chosen not to be water baptized yet. Hear me. Because you don't think you're ready yet. That is not what the scripture teaches. You are justified right now. You are redeemed right now. It is time publicly to put on the wedding ring and say, yes, it's been done for me. It's not about me being ready. It's about me obeying. That's the heart of this essence that we are made right at the beginning. Unlike every other religion that teaches you're made maybe right at the end. And so we're made right, Paul says, and we're free, and it's a gift. But then he says this word, a word that is at the heart of our conversation today. He says, then we get redeemed. The word redemption is a churchy word. It's rarely understood, but needs to be. It's an amazing idea. It means paying the price. In Paul's day, it was the word ransom. It was used in slave markets. When people would come and they'd want to buy a slave out of slavery or someone had been captured in war and the family wanted to buy them back, then they came and they redeemed them by a price. And this is exactly why Paul says, we are under the slavery of sin. And so Jesus comes by his work and he buys us out of slavery back into life. We're moved from darkness to light, he says, from alienation to friendship, from slavery to liberty. But then Paul shows us the cost. The cost which was so immense and so grand that it's hard for us genuinely to understand. But we need to attempt to understand this because our love then becomes best expressed and received and acted on when we understand the cost. Here's what Paul would say to us today if he was here. It cost heaven everything for you to pray the little prayer, Jesus, come into my heart. It cost heaven everything. Verse 25, God, it says, presented Jesus the Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ. Hear that. Let that sink in this morning. Rarely is this preached in Christian churches anymore. God gave over Jesus. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that is free for us cost him everything. God gave Jesus up and gave him over to deal with our sin. Good Friday, the terrible events that took place on that day, the murder of Jesus, the abuse of Jesus, the scorn of Jesus was the very plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. Is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? No. For God within himself loved the world so much that he sent himself. 
This act not only exposed heaven to sin itself, but actually the scriptures declare Jesus became sin for us. And he did this by this phrase. Everyone ready? Sacrifice of atonement. Now everyone needs to put their thinking caps on. This is, this, this is really important this morning. Many of us will never understand the power of what Paul is trying to give to us where our identity is rooted because we don't know our Old Testaments. This phrase, sacrifice of atonement, comes from Leviticus 16. Everyone ready to think? This is good. This is about the day of atonement. And sacrifice of atonement can also be translated mercy seat. Now, I was reading this week Chuck Swindoll, and he's got a great summary, so I'm going to steal it, but I'm, I'm saying it's his, so I'm not. Okay. Chuck Swindoll, I don't want him coming after me. Too serious. Now we're on podcasts. Everything's dangerous. Chuck Swindoll wrote it this way. He says, here's the summary of Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, which is a festival in the Jewish faith, the high priest brought two male goats before the congregation of Israel, and cast lots, basically an equivalent of flipping a coin. Now, this wasn't about chance. This was a way to let God be sovereign. Then the goat that God, the lot fell on, he had to actually bring it to God and make it an offering, a blood offering. Having sacrificed a bull on behalf of his family and friends, the high priest would enter the, into the tabernacle, the most holy place, and the Ark of the Covenant was at the back in the Holy of Holies. The Old Testament tells us that the special presence of God could be seen in the form of an otherworldly light called the Shekinah glory. Above, the ready? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, can you just bring up the image of the Ark? Now, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you have only seen it in movies. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, between the two angels there, that in the middle is called the mercy seat. Everyone got that? Just keep that there if you wouldn't mind. Now, the high priest... And only the high priest could enter this place once a year. And if he did it any other time, he'd be struck dead by God. So above those two symbolic angels, that's where the Shekinah glory rested. And below them is the mercy seat. Now the priest was called to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed ghost right on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is also called the cover of atonement, the place of propitiation, the place of satisfaction or appeasement. The Greek translation of this particular passage in the Old Testament uses the same term that Paul uses for Jesus here in Romans 3. Sacrifice of atonement. The high priest then would lay his hands on the other goat and the congregation would watch as he symbolically took all the sins of Israel, put it on the head of the ready, scapegoat, that's where it comes from, and would send it off into the desert to die. Now, this is what's going on. What Paul is declaring is that the crucifixion of Jesus is a public sprinkling of blood, a day of atonement rite of propitiation, the mercy seat. And it fulfills two important things. First, the atonement of Christ satisfies the wrath of God, which demanded justice for humanity's sin. Second, the atonement silenced the slander of God, which all of us have committed. So when Jesus actually is called, ready? the sacrifice of atonement here, or our mercy seat. He's actually saying, ready, that Jesus, first of all, becomes our scapegoat because all of our sins are put on him. Second, he actually becomes our sacrifice through his shed blood, and that's placed there. And third of all, he becomes our high priest because he's the one who stands between us and a holy God. Anyone impressed by Jesus yet? 
And not only that, here's even uh, the more amazing thing. Does this not enforce to us why human beings never can earn their salvation? What human being could stand before the living God and sacrifice their blood? What human being could actually become our high priest? What human being could become our scapegoat? No one. That's the amazing Jesus we worship in this church. I love John Piper who was writing, well, you can clap, it's good. It's good. John Piper wrote a little book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Have to Die. He's a great guy. I agree with half the things he says, like all good people. And, uh, but he, he wrote this amazing summary of this idea. He said, look, this whole idea refers to the removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. The substitute, he says, was provided by God himself. The substitute, Jesus Christ, does not, and this is important, cancel the wrath. He absorbs the wrath and diverts it from us to him. God's wrath is just. It was spent, not withdrawn. Let us never trifle with God's love or trivialize his love. Uh, We can never stand in awe of being loved by God until we reckon with the seriousness of our sin and the justice of his wrath. But when we come to the place where we see our unworthiness and we look at the suffering of Jesus' life and death, then we get to say the same words that Jesus' best friend said. And this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. Now, if that wasn't enough, now you get the power of that little phrase. Paul's not done. He, he rounds out his argument. He needs us to see from heaven's view why this was done. So he says these words. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or patience, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did this to demonstrate righteousness at this present time and as to be just and also the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God must deal with sin. God also must show his love for us. And so this is the amazing God we worship and know and follow after. God, within his own creativity, decides to deal with our sin, deal with his own wrath, which is just, and save us all in the same process. And then Paul says these words as we come near the end. He says, now you get this. Don't you ever think this was about you. Don't you ever become one of those religious, arrogant people who walk around and say, look what I've done for the living God. He says these words in verse 27. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. Because of the law? The law requires works? No, because the law requires faith. For we maintain that a person is made right, justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And then finally, Paul cries out, we are all on the same footing. Anyone who would embrace Jesus the Christ will be saved and liberated. And since there's only one true living God, and there's only one way to salvation, and it's open to all people, then come to him. The common denominator for anyone here who's a Christian is Jesus. And that's why he says in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? What about the non-Jews? Yes, of non-Jews too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then nullify the law by faith? No. Rather, we uphold the law. Again, I love what Chuck Swindoll summarized this way with three questions. He simply said, who deserves the credit for salvation? God. Second question, is salvation restricted to one people group? No. All people groups are open. Third, what's the role of the law? The answer is this. It brings us conviction, it diagnoses our problem, and then it says, turn to him. 
This is the good news we have as Christians this morning. This is the great joy for all people. Salvation is transferred, not bought. Salvation is free, not earned. Salvation is a display of love. It's not about duty. Salvation is a declaration of faith. And when and if you embrace Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, all the metaphors that Paul has used become your reality. The law court where you are condemned rightly as guilty, suddenly you get justified. In the world which truly is one large spiritual slave market, suddenly we, by God's choice, get bought back. We get redeemed. When we face God himself, we are then covered at the altar of Jesus because he's our high priest, our scapegoat, our mercy seat, and our sacrifice. This is, what, this is what's been done by Jesus for us. He's pardoned us, he's liberated us, and he's filled the gap for us. That is the good news of great joy for all people. Now the challenge this morning is this. To you who have not met Jesus yet, you who have no deep or honest or authentic connection to him yet, you have heard again the good news for the first time or the hundredth time. All the above can be given to you if you would receive and believe that you would receive by faith Jesus Christ and his work and his love. You need to come to the place where you admit you're fallen. You've fallen short, that you're a sinner in the eyes of a holy God, that you need a Savior and saving. You need to come to the place where you say yes to him and no to everything else. You that are not Christians this morning, let me again say to you, you need liberation this morning. Not more money, not more sex, not more power, not friendship, not a spouse, not more education, not more meditation or religion or self-help. You need liberation and the only one who can liberate you was the one who dealt with the mercy seat issue. That is why Paul would later write, uh, remember again, a former person who hated Christians, who murdered them, who met Jesus and became a follower. He would pen these words in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you admit who he truly is, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, in other words, his resurrection affirms everything he claimed, then you will be liberated. You will be saved. You will be set free and you will have a new relationship with God and his community and you will have everlasting life. The question before you this morning is this. Will you spend the rest of your life believing that you have the power to cover your sin or will you turn to the one that's already dealt with it? That is the question that is posed by heaven to you at this moment and that will bring you life or haunt you for all eternity. The question that is asked you this morning is this. What will you do with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? Many of us here, watching, listening, said yes. Not out of arrogance, not because we were religious, but because we came to the place where we went, I'm in, I need help. So what would the living Jesus say to us as we gather here today? I end with this. It's the first two words in verse 21. Please listen to this. But now. But now. These are the words that are written on the doors of our lives. This is the status update of every Christian forever. This is the best description of who we've become and what we're becoming. But now is used time and time again. And that is, that is where we need to derive our identity. You who struggle with your faith. 
Many of us have walked away from our faith. We allow others or the world or the demonic to twist or break our faith when we choose not to see, to live, and have our identity found in what God has spoken over us through his word. His voice must have full sway and full authority. Hear who you are. Hear what God looks like, looks over you at this moment. These words are your identity, nothing else. Ephesians 5.8 For you were once in darkness, but now you're the light in the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish, and here it is, you are free from accusation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexual immoral, idolaters, adulteresses, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slandered, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But in other translations it says, but now you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. First uh, Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter 2.25, you were like sheep that had gone astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Here's what God says to you this morning. You who are struggling in your faith, you who are doing well in your faith, you that have gone through a dark period, you who are holding on barely to your faith, you who are struggling in relationships and life in a way you never thought, all of us, no matter who you are as a Christian, heaven says this about you and you must root your identity there and only there. You're a child of light, God says. You're holy in my presence. You're free from the power of sin. You are not accused. No matter your struggles, no matter what other people say, no matter what the demonic try to say about you, you are clean, the Bible says. You are in good standing with me. God lives in you. You are part of my people, God says. You have been given mercy. You have returned. You have been named. You are kept by God, and Jesus is your shepherd and the bishop of your soul, and he will never let you go. Let the truth of God this morning break the lies that you've embraced about yourself. As one twittered this week, history should be learned from, not lived in. And that is the truth of what Paul is trying to communicate today. But now is what will be said over us now and throughout eternity. When we begin to embrace but now, then we get to say what an unbelievably amazing God we serve. And we get to root our identity there. When we move anywhere else to form our identity, we will end up back in darkness. God says to his community this morning, to some of you who have not embraced him yet, today is the day, what will you do with me? And to the rest of us, doing well or not, he reminds us that but now is our reality and we must come back to that hope. What amazing God we serve that he would do all this for us. Let's uh, prepare to worship, but let's also pray to him right now. Why don't you stand with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we only begin to understand the power of your work when we understand your word better. And so a few things. A huge thank you again from your people. That you'd be our mercy seat, our propitiation, that you would be our scapegoat, that you'd be our high priest, that you'd walk in and deal with all the stuff we've done. Thank you, Lord, that but now is the phrase over our lives. But not only that, we, we come to you and there's a few things we need to deal with. 
If you're not a Christian yet and you want to embrace the Lord Jesus today, pray this prayer. I have been your enemy for years, knowingly or not, and I'm done. I admit now that I need a Savior. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God. I admit my sin, my rebellion, and I now say, save me. Set me free. Liberate me. Now and for eternity. I want but now to be written over my life, too. I ask this in Jesus' name, who's become my scapegoat and my sacrifice. Amen. If you prayed that this morning, uh, tell your friend you came with, your neighbor, your relative, come to one of us because it says you need to do this publicly. But as a Christian community, let's now all pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that Paul met and spoke about and wrote about here, we come before you now and pray that these things would be done in us, that we would root our identity and what you've said over us, that there's been a shift in our lives, and we pray, Lord, for us who have walked away, you would bring us back. God, we pray also, Lord, for healing in this place and life change in this place and forgiveness of sin and new hope and new life. And we just want to say again a huge thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you that we will never face you when we die and you'll say, what did you do for me to get in? Thank you that you'll look to Jesus every time and we get to point and say he did it for us. God, I pray for myself genuinely and for us that this would hit home in a way that never has before. We celebrate you, Jesus. We join with the church all around the world, millions of us, and all those who are in your presence, and we say, Jesus, we worship you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're worthy of all worship because of what you've done for us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, let's celebrate. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.